This is Guns and Butter. Joseph Kabila, who's in power today, is running the country for and by powerful corporations, including, for example, the World Bank. He's connected to some very powerful Israelis, like Israeli-Americans, Russo-Israeli-Americans in some cases. So you've got these Russian mafia and Israeli mafia and American mafia. And when I say mafia, I'm talking about organized crime. What is organized crime? Organized crime is any multinational corporation whose board of directors sits down and makes a decision that involves the shipping in of weapons, the exploitation of people, and the covering it all up by saying, well, we're actually going to stop slavery in Congo, like King Leopold said, and the United Nations as well. And this is only true in so much as they seek to exploit the place absolutely. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Keith Harmon Snow. Today's show, Blood Diamonds and Devastation in Congo. Keith Snow is a journalist, a photojournalist, and a human rights and genocide investigator. He reported for Genocide Watch and Survivors' Rights International on Congo and Ethiopia. Keith Snow was a genocide consultant for a United Nations body in the Horn of Africa in 2005. Reported from the International Criminal Tribunal on Rwanda in 2001 and provided expert testimony on genocide and covert operations in Africa for a special U.S. congressional hearing chaired by Representative Cynthia McKinney in 2001. He has worked in 17 countries in Africa and has received four Project Censored Awards for Africa reporting. Today's show, Blood Diamonds and Devastation in Congo. Keith Snow, welcome again. Hi, Bonnie. Thanks so much for having me back. Well, Keith, you've just returned from a long trip to the Congo. How long were you there, and what parts of the Congo did you visit? Well, this one was only a month and a half. I landed in Kinshasa, the capital city, uh, around February 15th, and flew pretty soon to Kisangani, which is immortalized in a book called Abandon the River by an Indian writer I can't think the name of. And Kisangani's pretty much in the heart of the rainforest, very isolated place diamond capital of one of the diamond two diamond capitals of the Congo and then from Kisangani traveled down the river the Congo River to some plantations that are on the banks of the Congo River or inland and some logging concessions that are down there and then flew up to or flew over to Goma which is on the border with Rwanda in North Kivu to do some work there on the uh, the rebel militias the, the current situation there is still very bad for the people the fighting is still very bad. And the mining, meaning the minerals exploitation by Rwanda, Uganda, and other factors is very important, still going on there. And then flew up to Bunia, which is another center of uh, deep atrocities on the border with Uganda and up closer to Sudan. And Bunia in Ituri province is, I've called it for years now, the bloodiest corner of the world. So we flew up there and did some research on the gold mining companies that my target was the George Bush George Herbert Walker Bush gold mining connection to this company called Barrett Gold, which established operations up there in 1996, just as the war broke out, coincidentally. And then after that, went back to Kinshasa, where we arrived just after the war on March 22nd, 
which was a war between the current president and the other person, Jean-Pierre Bemba, rebel leader who ran for president but didn't win. So they had a what you might call a mini-war in Kinshasa, in the capital city, from March 22nd to March 26th, which, along with many of the other things that I'm happy to talk about, pretty much the details, the most important details, have not been reported anywhere. So that's a quick overview of the recent trip to Congo. Now, Keith, I understand from reading some of the stuff that you've written that uh, traveling in the Democratic Republic of the Congo is not exactly the easiest thing to do. And I thought maybe you could describe that for us. And then maybe we might list some of the very many unreported stories of what is actually happening currently in the Congo. Traveling in Congo is really an adventure. <laughs> the first time I went into Congo, it was 1991, and I came in from Uganda, where the roads were paved and it was sunny and bright, and Uganda itself had just gone through this massive, what you would call in the American media, a civil war, which is really about Western interests. And anyway, the roads were nice, and then you hit Congo, or at that time it was Zaire under Mobutu, President Mobutu, and it uh, was just mud and soldiers and really difficult traveling. But I went on a mountain bike for three weeks, and circled out back to Uganda, and that was my first visit to Congo. And pretty much since then, since 1991, it's actually been destroyed even worse further. So traveling in Congo can really be an adventure. We fly in to Kinshasa and pick up working with Monuk, the United Nations Observer Missions to Congo, traveled with Monuk as an accredited journalist, able to fly anywhere in the country where they're working, and travel with Monuk to get to some of the places that are very inaccessible. And then from Kisangani, for example, I took uh, local river transport that the local people would use, which is basically dugout canoes, and it was a nightmare. It was an overnight, started at about 6 o'clock in the evening and ended the next day for, uh, I don't know, I think it was about 150 kilometers downriver. And it was uh, ended the next day at about noon, and it was just all-night travel on a, a dugout with a little motor, bunch of dugouts tied together, mosquitoes and people crammed in there like sardines or people with malaria, people with no food, no money, people with, you know, carrying their goats or their chickens with them sometimes. <laughs> really difficult. And then other times used uh, bicycles, the local people's bicycles, and sometimes motorcycles to get around because some areas have motorcycles, some areas have bicycles, some areas actually have cars like out in Goma near Rwanda where there's a huge commerce. So traveling can be, it really can be an adventure. You don't know what you're going to find around the next corner. And the biggest part about getting around Congo is the institutionalized extortion and racketeering, little fiefdoms controlled by soldiers and police or powerful individuals who have their little cabals of soldiers and police. And you have to have all these documents, and everything has to be in order, or you just won't go anywhere. And with UN, my I beat that by having a document from Kinshasa which showed that I'd been working with the government or paid money to get a Ministry of Information document to work as a journalist and also had credentials with the MONUC, uh, UN Observer's Mission, as an accredited journalist. And with those two documents, pretty much soldiers would leave me alone under the current situation. I was, of course, arrested a couple times by militias over the last three, four years. <laughs> and one time the militias really were pretty aggressive about me being there, what I was doing there, and uh, I was even arrested by Monuk twice, the UN Observer Mission, 
the uh, Moroccan soldiers up in Bunia in Ituri province, Ituri region of Oriental province arrested me twice for taking pictures of Monuk soldiers, meaning the Moroccan soldiers. And they, in one case, they actually stripped the film out of my camera. So, it, yeah, the, the hardest part in getting around is the institutionalized corruption, the institutionalized roadblocks that are put up. That This is, of course, what the people deal with also. If they're trying to sell their goods downriver, they have to deal with roadblock or down the road, roadblock after roadblock after roadblock where small proportions of their goods and profits are taken from them all along the way. So they actually might end up at the end of their journey down river or down the road with less than they started with and no way to get back. And I documented numerous cases of that or almost countless cases of that women and children trying to get down river to make a living and somehow in the middle of this horrible war that's claimed something like depends who you talk to six to ten million or maybe even more six to ten million people over the last ten years how dangerous is it i've heard uh... from friends who have friends who live in africa different parts of africa that uh, people there uh, typically have armed guards. Is that common? Yeah, it's uh, Kinshasa, for example, as well as other big cities. Um, some of the mo- safest parts of the country are the more remote, deep in the forest places. That's kind of a contradiction. And then, of course, if you get near any of the mining sites, you get into possibility of running into soldiers or militaries that control the mining sites. And if you're if you're in the city like Kinshasa, it can be very dangerous. I was nearly abducted once in 2005 when I was just walking down the street, and I know other people who were abducted. Even journalists were abducted on the street just walking along. They would be someone would stop a car, a bunch of guys would jump out, push them in the car. Sometimes they would try to convince the person they were abducting that they were police. They would show them a badge. That's what happened with me. The guy said he, he was police. He showed me a badge, and then his people that he was working with to abduct me failed. They didn't show up in time, so he wasn't able to get me in the car, and I moved down the road really quickly to the embassy. So there's all kinds of these horror stories. Yeah, all kinds of nasty things occur in the middle of the night. Uh, It's like Nairobi. People will be beheaded. You know, the guards will be beheaded by uh, some armed robbers or something. I think actually Nairobi is just as dangerous as Congo can be. But in Goma, for example, the place closes down after dark, and it's really unsafe after dark. This doesn't apply to people working for humanitarian agencies or the U.N. They all have their big fancy four-wheel drives, and they can lock the doors, and they can move through the city pretty quickly. But for somebody working like me who doesn't have that kind of a budget or that kind of equipment, it can be very dangerous and difficult. And at the same time, you know, it's, it can, it's an amazingly safe place in many respects. You, you would feel more unsafe walking through parts of L.A. or parts of New York than you would even in Kinshasa sometimes, you know, so it's all relative. The media whips up this tribal specter of fear, you know, it needs to be kept in in proper perspective. So there must be a big difference between uh, the cities and the rural areas. Yeah, Kinshasa is actually a very developed city, you know, big skyscrapers and everything, not quite nice skyscrapers like you'll see in other capital cities around the world or even in Africa, but they're still quite tall buildings, and there's an amazing amount of construction going on at this year, now, because of after the elections, things have settled down a little bit. But the uh, rural areas, you'll go, you can, if you get out to the rural areas, and it, it's really a, a trek to get out to some of the most rural parts of the Congo. And by the time you get out there, you're, you can be exhausted just getting to the place you want to get to to try to figure out what's going on. In 2005, I left off from the city of Lisala, which is on a fairly small, you can't really call it a city, it's kind of a sprawling little town. 
and it was a it had a palace where Mobutu lived for a while. Uh, it was one of his many palaces, and it's right on the Congo River. And we set off from the Congo River. I was working with another journalist, and we crossed the river, and then we hiked for we walked for um, seven days to get to this tributary of the Congo called the Lopori River, and then we built a a raft. Uh, out of three dugouts, build a platform on it and put a roof on it. And then we floated for three weeks down the Lopori River without a motor with two local guys who were paddling. And this was to access these really remote areas that uh, you could fly in if you were in some of the places there's small remote airstrips like USAID or intelligence people for the U.S. have flown into some of these remote airstrips. But for, as I said, for a guy like me or my friend, it, it was impossible to get in there. So we used we built a raft and floated down the river and took testimony from people all along the way about the human rights situation, about who they've seen, what kind of militias were there, uh, who's working there from the so-called conservation community and the humanitarian community and the exploitation, meaning, meaning logging or mining or plantations or other petroleum, perhaps, or other kinds of exploitation that might be going on in the area. So that's how I kind of mapped out big parts of the Congo where I did travel. And there's huge parts of the Congo I haven't even been close to. It's just, it's as big as the United States from the Atlantic Ocean to the Ohio River and about as long as Maine to Florida, I believe. So it's, you know, it's a huge place. And the stories that we could talk about that aren't being told are amazing. There's numerous stories that are very important. Well, before we talk about the stories, could you quickly tell us what the weather's like there? Is it hot and steamy, or is it cold? What's it like? You can find both of those. You can find hot and steamy. You can find cold. You can get up into the mountains in the in the um, eastern part in the rainforest. Some of the volcanoes, National Park, for example, the Congo, the Cahuzi uh, Vega National Park. The mountains are quite high, and it can get quite cold, especially at night. Very cold, in fact. I slept out there with soldiers once. And then in Kinshasa, it's hot and steamy, and it's like a, I can't figure it out. Once I learned that it was a triple rainy season, means that there's three times a year that there would be long periods of rain. But I don't know if that's true. It just seems to rain <laughs> sometimes, and it doesn't rain other times. And so the more rain there is, the more humid it is, and you're just sweating, and you're search, your clothing's just soaked if you're walking around and within minutes. And, and uh, in Equator and Oriental, the two provinces up there north, and around the Congo River, where the rainforest is, it's unbearable, unbearable all day long, just unbearable heat. And it just saps your energy, you know, even when you have food. And for the people who don't have food, most of the time, it's, it's a pretty difficult life condition. And, of course, that's all unnecessary because there's plenty of plantations and business exploitation, business enterprises that have been operating in all of these regions, you know, since, since King Leopold, which was 1895. I'm speaking with journalist and human rights investigator Keith Snow. Today's show, Blood Diamonds and Devastation in Congo. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, what would you say would be a short list of some of the very important events and uh, news stories that should be being covered currently in uh, Congo? Well, to start off, you know, to lay the framework to answer that question, you, I would say in 1895, King Leopold sent his man, a journalist, Henry Morton Stanley, from the New York Post, into the Congo as his agent to organize the rubber and the ivory exploitation, put a propaganda face on it that said that what he was really doing was stopping the slavery. And 
at the time, Henry Morton Stanley set up these networks using the local people as arming them and, and using Belgians as well, and, and dividing and conquering across the Congo. And this is exactly where I went, up to this part of Kisangani, for example. That was the heart of Leopold's enterprise. And he did this by cutting, they were cutting people's hands off if they didn't produce the quota. And that's how they kept the rubber and the ivory flowing out. Every bullet that was shot, they had to produce a hand that showed that the person had been killed. Now, this is, this is basically what's going on today. They don't cut people's hands off, although they do in Sierra Leone, and that revolves around the diamonds, if you saw Blood Diamond. But in the heart of the Congo, there's this incredible slavery going on. It's been redefined in a certain way that it isn't quite the slavery under, that you had under Leopold, but it's a system of exploitation that forces people to continue to work under the most atrocious conditions with absolutely no choices. They're dying like flies in some places. They're getting, if you can call it, getting paid as little as $2 a month to work every single day or at least six days a week because they go to church if they're lucky. Six days a week to make $2 a month from a plantation company that's run by an American guy. So you've got this incredible slavery going. If the media from the United States or from Europe or the BBC, for example, reports that at all, it's always Africans committing slavery against Africans or children, how they have to work for their parents, and it's slavery. But they never talk about the white guys behind all of this. So the situation that occurred under King Leopold 100 years ago is basically what you've got in Congo today. And the war, of course, stirred that all up, stirred up the organized crime under Mobutu and, and his racketeering networks, and, of course, Mobutu came after the Belgian colonial enterprise, which basically put everything in place to make it all happen. So that's the framework in which to answer that question. So anything you see in the American media is basically completely deceptive. What are the stories that are not being told? Slavery in the Congo, plantation slavery, uh, run by an American family like the Blattner family, the OM Group, which is owned by George Forrest. OM Group is in Ohio. George Forrest is exploiting the Congo since 1922. He has all kinds of businesses there, but one of the primary ones recently that's been very much associated with the war is the coltan, columbium tantalite. It's a mineral used for cell phones and Sony Playstations and laptop computers. And you don't see George Forrest's name mentioned anywhere. Instead, you see African tribes fighting each other in the Congo. Those Africans do that, and that's the way it is. Logging. Same company, the Blattner family, massive logging concessions in the Congo. Logging in situations where they're stripping out, for example, there's concessions all over the northern Congo. They've been given out to all of these powerful people from, and companies from around the world, Portugal, Belgium, France, England, United States, Australia. Japan has an interest in this, and Korea and China. They're sticking their fingers in there, too. That's part of the reason for the war. But let's stick to this American company called the Blattner family. James Blattner was the father, and he had three sons, and they divided it up. And today you've got Elwin and David and one more Blattner son. But these guys run logging. They run transport. They run river transport. They run construction, and they run some of the plantations. And the Blattner family has six plantations. Each plantation has something like 1,000 to 3,000 people working on it. Each plantation is producing two or three or four of these key products. Rubber, chocolate, which would be cocoa beans, coffee, coffee beans, palm oil. The people, as I said, working on some of these plantations are making as little as $2 a month. When I say they don't have any choices, 
They can't go anywhere. They can't leave. There's nowhere for them to go. There's no land that's available for them to move to. If they did, they would go to the city. In the process of escaping to the city, they would be hit with all of these levies and fines and extortion, and they would need papers to do that, to travel, or else they'd potentially, especially women, be picked up and, and used as sexual slaves. They're stuck on these plantations. They've got, in some cases, plantation housing. And you can't really call it housing because it's, it's an exoskeleton, a basic you know, structure, if, if they have a structure at all. They're supposedly getting, according to the company, they get health care and they get schools and they get education. And you see this with WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, and you see it with the conservation organizations in general going in and creating these conservation reserves today in Congo. And you see it with the logging companies and you see it with the plantations. They say they're giving health care, schools, they give a good wage, which is not true, and they give, sometimes they say they give transport, they give insurance. This is just lies through the teeth. Over and over, Greenpeace just produced a report about the logging of some of these logging companies, and that's exactly the same story that I've been working on. And with the plantations, it's the same thing. They say they're giving schools. You look at the school. You can't call it a school. There's never any books. They might have the Bible, but that's the only thing. And that brings up the issue of Christian or evangelical religious organizations from the United States, sometimes linked to the CIA, which have been operating in the Congo. So there's all of these different facets that are not at all being brought out in any sense of the word in the American press. And you can connect you know, these most powerful people to the American press anyway. So that's part of the problem. Keith, when you use the word plantation, are you uh, referring to something that's uh, like a corporate-run entity that enslaves people? Yeah, you'd have to say it's a corporation. It has incorporated itself as a business in the Congo. For example, this uh, Busira Lumami, uh, that's the name of the company, that's the name of the place. Busira was one section of this plantation, and Lumami was another one, and that's why we went down the Lumami River. And... Busira Lumami was, was a plantation that was started, I think, uh, I'm not sure of the numbers, it was either 1913 or 1922 or 1923 by the Belgians, soon after King Leopold. Of course, King Leopold had to give up his private fiefdom in the Congo to the Belgian government in 1909 or 1910. So we're basically talking about the same system of exploitation that was set up under the, colonial, the Belgian colonial enterprise. Massive infrastructure was put in from 1909 to 1959 when the Belgians turned the Congo over to the Congolese people, fighting tooth and nail and making sure all along the way that the Congolese people would not benefit from anything in their own country, meaning during the enterprise of colonialism as well as after when they so-called declared independence. So you can go into these plantations and see these old buildings that used to be Universities, for the mo- I mean, institutes. There's this one riding through the rainforest. Suddenly, this is south of Kisangani, came to this huge, massive building that was probably 60, 70, 80 years old, or even more. And it used to be an institute for some sort of a botanical studies where they would do the research on the plants for palm oil, for example, the palm oil plants. And it's completely abandoned now. And that's because the Belgians split the system saw a reorganization under Mobutu that meant that a lot of the Belgian power structure left. But many of these plantations continued to operate, and they did so with complete untransparency, the opposite of transparency. So Busira Lamami, the 
from 1959, which was independence, to today, they've continued to operate without giving the people anything at all. And under Mobutu, nobody went in, as far as I can see. If you search the American media, there's no stories about the plantations during the Mobutu era. 1980s, 1990s, look at the New York Times. There isn't a single story from the American press that connects these plantation owners from the United States. Powerful Israeli Zionist connections in the United States or French people or Belgian people in Europe that are running these plantations. You don't find anything like that. Instead, you find these racist stories about how Congo is just falling apart under Mobutu. But everything that existed under Mobutu, which was massive business for the United States, not deconstruction and deterioration, it was a massive business for the United States, still exists in Congo today. Some of it was destroyed during the war, but some of the very same people who profited significantly under Mobutu are profiting today. And in fact, they've gotten themselves elected because they had so much money to do so in what became known as the first free and independent elections in the Congo, which occurred in August of last year. Anybody who, would, who dares to open their mouth on one of these plantations will first be fired. And depending on the extent to which they have the audacity to open their mouth, they will be killed. And the average lifespan for people on these plantations might be 40 years old. They're dealing with diseases that they shouldn't be dealing with at all in, the, in this era, 2007. Massive epidemics of tuberculosis, malaria. AIDS isn't the number one killer in Congo. What these people are dealing with in the Congo, and it's the same in most of Africa, AIDS is not the killer. AIDS in the United States in media is a big propaganda campaign run by and for powerful interests that stand to benefit from, in one way or another, the manipulation of the public mind in the United States about this thing they call AIDS in Africa. The number one killer in Africa is malaria. Number two is tuberculosis. Number three is diarrhea. I mean, four, five, and six are malnutrition and river blindness and schizosomiasis. This other one that comes from this parasite that drills into your blood system and eventually drills holes in your heart. These are the killers on these plantations. And I've got World Health Organization doctors from the Congo who went onto the plantations and found that the conditions, the health conditions on the plantations are worse than the health conditions where there's no plantation. They're worse than the health conditions where there's no logging. And of course, the company's argument is, and this is the New York Times argument, the New York Times is currently running this propaganda argument about how we need to bring development to the Congo, and it's by this guy, Nicholas Kristof, and his whole argument is the only thing worse than exploitation is no exploitation, saying that the people suffering in these areas where there's no capitalism, where there's no corporations, are worse off than people who are being exploited where there are corporations. And this is absolutely not true. First of all, the corporations are there. The plantations are there. The mining companies, the diamonds, the coltan, the oil, they're there in Congo. You don't see them because the American press excludes that. We don't want people to understand that there is something called development in Congo. You know, Congo in 1959 had a higher standard of living than Portugal. It was on a par with South Africa. This isn't shown by the American press. Instead, we get these, as the Newsweek put it during the war, tribal people walking backwards into battle wearing bathroom fixtures on their head. Drugged. This is nonsense. It's racist. It's white supremacy. On the plantations, the people are dealing with epidemics of tuberculosis, and they're dealing with malaria, and they're dealing with other epidemics. And the, and the bottom line is, 
it's exploitation of labor. There's an infinite number of people, respectively, there's an infinite number of people to be working. As long as you keep the people absolutely desperate, poor, in a state of military control, you can keep the salaries at a bare minimum. You don't have to give them housing. You don't have to build their school that you supposedly promised them. You don't have to do any of that. On the plantations run by the Blattner family, in Busiro Lamami, for example, if anyone opens their mouth, they'll be fired. If they take it to the next level and they, they try to protest, they'll be arrested. They'll be taken to jail. They'll be put in jail. They'll be carried upriver to Kisangani and put in jail in Kisangani. If the family wants to get the person out, the village will try to raise enough money to try to bribe the officials to let the man go. And it's almost always a man that's been arrested. They don't arrest the women. They just take them as sexual slaves or mistreat them. Don't keep them, but mistreat them sexually. So the men are arrested. The villages couldn't be poorer. I mean, they couldn't be poorer. And they try to raise some money one way or another to get this person who's part of the, the village, part of the community, out of the prison. And they do that. And the, the amount of money that they raise isn't anything close to the kind of money that these companies are making on these products. And the company in Busiro Lamami, for example, they will pay the local police or the local military to arrest people who have stolen some of the products that they're producing. For example, palm nuts. Palm nuts are used for palm oil for this company, Busiro Lamami, this Blattner company. And the soldiers during the war would actually, and the police would actually go into the people's houses, the people who lived on the plantation, and under the claim that they have to search to make sure that no palm nuts have been stolen, and they would take whatever they wanted. And the people don't have anything, and I can show you, you know, people will eventually see some pictures of this. The soldiers would go in, they'd claim they're checking to make sure there's no theft of the company's palm oil, palm nuts, and then they would take whatever they wanted. And now it's not quite that bad, but it's still serious. The police today are paid 2,000 Congolese francs for every person that they, will, that they arrest for stealing palm nuts. Now, 2,000 Congolese francs is, is uh, $4.00. But they're paid $4 for every person that they arrest. So there's an incentive to arrest people. And I told you the salary for people who work there, in some cases, is as little as 1,000 francs, which is $2 a month. So you see the disparity. Soldiers or police immediately get 2,000 francs if they arrest someone. And the person doesn't have any rights. There's no lawyers. You can't prove that they weren't on the plantation or didn't steal any palm nuts. They don't steal the palm nuts because their life, very life is threatened if they did. But the soldiers are arresting people for this because they're getting paid 2,000 francs per person to do that. I'm speaking with journalist and human rights investigator Keith Snow. Today's show, Blood Diamonds and Devastation in Congo. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Could I ask you this? Yeah. Uh, the police and the soldiers then work for the government, which has what, been paid off by foreign corporations to do their bidding? The whole police and soldiers thing is complicated. The soldiers are supposed to be paid by the government. At the top levels, the soldiers at the top, the generals, the colonels, they're skimming. They're making a profit on different things, whether it's mining or it's their connection to some official or it's their providing security for a plantation. So the top-level people are getting paid. It comes from the government. The lower people, the lower soldiers, don't get paid. And this was true under Mobutu as well, and it was used as a tactic keep the people unpaid, it keeps them, in a certain sense, you keep the soldiers powerless. At the same time, they pilfer, they pillage, they rob, they steal, they loot, they kill, they rape, and they get themselves paid. You know, on one level, 
the soldiers themselves are victim of this incredible system whereby you've got phenomenal profits exiting the Congo every single day by and for these mostly white corporations or individuals who have their people at the top in Congo, but down at the lower levels, the money isn't trickling down to the soldiers, and they're being punished, for example, for committing atrocities. And really, in many cases, they've got their families, and they've got to find some way to keep themselves alive, and that's what they do. So it's, it's a combination of things. In Busira Lumami, there's a kind of a force public. It's a public force that's on the plantation itself that has a, a base. They travel around on the company trucks. They work at night watching plantation to make sure people aren't going in and cutting palm nuts at night. And we're talking, these plantations are vast areas of groves of palm nut trees or coffee or cocoa trees, plants. Huge, huge areas expanding as we speak with no regard for the people who actually own the land. But the soldiers themselves get some pay from, supposedly they get a paycheck from the government, but many times it'll be, for example, a mid-level police officer might be getting at least the promise of equivalent of $15 a month. That's nothing. You can't live on that. And that's a standard kind of a salary. It's not low or high as far as police go. The company and the government work together to keep the soldiers and the police in a state of rapacious existence so that it serves their interests. And at the same time, they reward the police. They reward the soldiers. So the question then arises, how did this enterprise, for example, the plantation, operate during the war? And the answer is, the plantation owners, the Blattner family, Elwin Blattner, and his people that worked for him at the top levels, especially his Belgian, what I call the slave master, the man that actually travels around to the plantations and oversees all of these plantations, they paid off both sides. They worked with both sides. They worked with the rebels in the rebel territory, and they worked with the government in the government territory. They funded the war. It's like betting on every horse. And the profits are so high that they can afford to do that. So they were shipping their product down the Congo River for the plantations that were in the government-held territories, and they were shipping their products out on airplanes through Uganda and Rwanda on the rebel-held territories. And what was coming in on those airplanes were weapons. Now, nobody has reported anything like this. When you talk about the war, are you referring to the recent war in March of 2007? No, but there was a war in March of 2007. It depends how you look at it. The war began in, in Congo, we can say. The war began, well, you always have to take a step back. Officially, the, from my point of view, the war in Congo began in October of 1990 when Paul Kagame, trained by the United States, invaded Rwanda. In April of 1994, Kagame and his army, supported by the Pentagon, overthrew Rwanda. In August of 1996, Kagame and Museveni, the president of Uganda, marched into Congo with the support of Halliburton and the Pentagon and Military Professional Resources Incorporated, a private mercenary firm out of Washington, D.C. So some people would say the war in Congo began, the recent one began in August of 1996. That war that began in August of 96 lasted two years. In 1998, they put this guy Kabila, the father, Laurent Kabila, in power in Kinshasa. But he turned around and he said no to the World Bank, and he said no to the IMF, and he said no to the Rwandans and Ugandans, and he threw them out. Suddenly, the Rwandans and Ugandans reinvaded the Congo, and now we're talking about Clinton, Bill Clinton. The people that support the Rwandans and Ugandans are Bill Clinton and his most powerful friends in many cases, and there's plenty of Republicans involved as well. 
but there's definitely this relationship between the Republicans and the Democrats and the current situation in the Congo, and who has control of these, in many cases, mining areas. So in, in August or September of 1998, what the Congolese know is the first war of occupation began. So this guy Kabila was in power. Angola, Namibia, Libya all came to his support, and I think Zimbabwe came to his support, and they fought Uganda and Sudan. The government of Sudan came to his support, and they fought against the SPLA, which was the Sudan People's Liberation Army, who were supposedly in South Sudan, but they were part of it, and they fought against the UNITA, who was the rebels from Angola, who were supported by the CIA in the 1980s, and they supported the Rwandans and the Ugandans, and they fought against the Kabila side. Eventually, this guy Kabila was assassinated because, well, you just don't throw out the IMF and you don't throw out Bechtel. <laughs> you just don't do that. And they put this other guy in power, and they named him Kabila, and I don't think his name is Kabila, and he's the guy who's the president today. So now the person that heads up the Congo is Joseph Kabila. Would you say that he then is more pliant than Laurent Kabila in terms of his dealings with foreign corporations? Joseph Kabila is an interesting case. He's a young guy. I think he saw the, what happened to this guy, Laurent Kabila. Whether or not that's his father doesn't matter. People of Congo at this point, a lot of them don't care whether he's Kabila's son. They don't believe he is, but they don't care. What they want to see is that Kabila runs the country the way a Congolese leader should run it, for and by the people. He is not doing that. Kabila, Joseph Kabila, who's in power today, is running the country for and by powerful corporations, including, for example, the World Bank. He's connected to some very powerful Israelis, like Israeli-Americans, Russo-Israeli-Americans in some cases. So you've got these Russian mafia and Israeli mafia and American mafia. And when I say mafia, I'm talking about organized crime. What is organized crime? Organized crime is any multinational corporation whose board of directors sits down and makes a decision that involves the shipping in of weapons, the exploitation of people, and the covering it all up by saying, well, we're actually going to stop slavery in Congo, like King Leopold said, and the United Nations as well. And this is only true in so much as they seek to exploit the place absolutely. If the corporations are prevented from mining the diamonds, I was going to ask you to speak about diamonds or blood diamonds. That's a big business in Congo as well, isn't it? It's at least a billion dollars a year in, in uh, diamonds coming out of Congo. Why was there a mini-war on March 22nd to March 26th? Jean-Pierre Bemba, the rebel leader who started to fight in Congo during the Second War, meaning the First War of Occupation, 1998, Jean-Pierre Bemba was a friend of Mobutu. His father was very close with Mobutu. He came out of the north of Congo, and he took over two-thirds of the north. He took over the northern area from around the Congo River, all north up to the Central African Republic, all the way across the country to Uganda, with Ugandan support. Ugandans and Rwandans had a partnership, and they joined this guy, Bemba, and that became the rebel-held area. After the so-called peace treaty, eventually, the rebels were integrated into the government and what became known as the transitional government in the Congo, which was roughly 2002 until the elections of 2006. And in the transitional government, Jean-Pierre Bemba was given the vice presidency of, of finance. And other rebel leaders were given other vice presidencies. And Kabila was given the presidency. So they had this power-sharing agreement from 2002 until 2006. 
you look behind each of them and you find these, not just diamonds, but certainly diamond mafias. So this guy, Tony Texera, Portuguese-born, lives in South Africa. Jean-Pierre Bemba's wife is his daughter. Tony Texera's connections to mercenary companies like Sandline International, a British mercenary company, and Heritage Oil and Gas, a British company with connections to the Clintons. And during the war in Congo, this played out in nasty little ways. And Clinton actually, at one time in Hope, Arkansas, one of these mining companies that's close to these guys I'm talking about and close to Clinton set up in Hope, Arkansas. It was called America Mineral Fields International. And America Mineral Fields International eventually went through some morphing. They changed their name four or five times, and today they're involved in the south of Congo in one of the most lucrative contracts dealing with mining of cobalt and copper. And cobalt is the biggest business in Congo. Well, diamonds produce roughly $1 billion a year, at least, exports for the Congo. It's not benefiting the Congolese people in any sense of the word. But cobalt, this guy Dan Gertler, who's very close with Kabila today, and he's one of these American-Israeli Zionist forces involved in the Congo today, his father, grandfather, are behind the diamond bourse in Tel Aviv. So Israel's number three business, I think, is diamonds, and this is all Dan Gertler and his family. Dan Gertler is considered today the unofficial ambassador in the Congo. It used to be this guy, Maurice Templespan. Templespan was very close to, he still is, very close to the Democratic Party. But his interests in Congo have been displaced a little bit. And Templespan's alliance with the Democratic Party, you've then got Gertler's alliance with Bush. So Gertler has been to the White House. He's considered the uh, unofficial ambassador, as I said, and he's also very close with Joseph Kabila. So that brings in Kabila's interest. And so what happens then this Gertler has just won a contract in the cobalt mining down in the south, where Adastra, this company connected to Clinton, already has a big contract in one mine. And the Gertler mine, for example, the input, the money, the investment that they're talking about, I think, is $2 billion investment. That tells you how much money is going to be made on the cobalt, you know, a 40%, 50% profit in the end, because it's Congo, that's what they do there. I mean, they can literally get away with murder without paying anything and make 40%, 50% profits. But the $2 billion investment compared to diamonds themselves, which are $1 billion in exports. So the cobalt is a massive, massive business. But going back to the diamonds, so on March 22nd to 26th of this year, just recently, there was this mini-war in Kinshasa, and it was the president and his diamond interests and mining interests and mercenary connections and petroleum connections and U.S. government connections, fighting against Jean-Pierre Bemba, the guy who didn't win the elections and wouldn't accept, wouldn't gracefully accept a lesser position in the government, which he was actually offered. They had a little war, and it's very clear how it all began, and they just started fighting. And what has not been reported about this little war is, first of all, that it was about mining and diamonds and all this, or that it was a cleaning the international system at this point is tired of this guy, Bemba, and they decided to get rid of him, meaning the most powerful people decided to fight against him and his powerful people and get rid of him, get him out of the scene so that these corporations, which include you know, humanitarian interests like the IRC or CARE International, they can make their profits, or big mining companies, or petroleum companies, or AIDS, pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer, which is very close to the Condoleezza Rice, and also the Clintons. And this little war on the 22nd, um, 
lasted about three days. They just blasted each other back and forth. Bemba put child soldiers on the street. They're called Kidogo. You get children, you give them a gun, and you put them in the front. And when the troops come to fight against them, they're the first people that will be shot. And then the real hardened, battle-hardened soldiers are in the back. So troops from both sides, Kabila's formal troops and Bemba's fighters fought it out for three or four days, completely destroying the city in many places, going into banks and shooting up innocent people. After it was all done, and then I think it was the ambassador of the German embassy said, at least 600 people dead. But the reality is that it was probably around 1,500 at least, and maybe as many as 2,000, and it could even be over that, people that were actually killed. They came with dump trucks, and they picked up the dead bodies. These are innocent people, not soldiers. They also picked up the soldiers. They picked up the dead bodies, and they took them and threw them in mass graves. The morgue was full of bodies. People were picked up in dump trucks and dumped in the Congo River. There was no accounting for the number of bodies. So you've got all of these dimensions that were never reported. First of all, it was a war about profits and mining and establishing control by the international capitalist system. Second, the number of people killed. Third, how they were killed. Fourth, who did the killing? Who backs up these guys? And then the question, why didn't the United Nations peacekeeping operations stop it? The United Nations played a very powerful role in establishing the current situation in Congo, which is, from my point of view and from the point of view of Congolese people that are calling me or emailing me, dictatorship. And it's becoming even more institutionalized every single day. You ask me, who is Kabila? You know, what's the story with this guy, Kabila? The fact is, I think he saw this, this older guy, Lauren Kabila, assassinated. He saw him assassinated on exactly the day that they wanted to assassinate him, exactly the way that they wanted. When they assassinated Lauren Kabila, they did it in January, I think it was 2001, exactly 40 years after, and on exactly the same day or the day after, they assassinated Patrice Lumumba. They could have assassinated him in October, but they didn't. They assassinated him, they waited for the day that Patrice Lumumba was killed, and they assassinated him on that day exactly 40 years later. And Joseph Kabila saw that, and I'm sure he takes that as a message that, you know, he has to do what, what he's there to do. But the fact is, he's also not any kind of a leader. He's not serving the people of Congo. They're making incredible amounts of money. You know, there's all kinds of corruption. I'm speaking with journalist and human rights investigator Keith Snow. Today's show, Blood Diamonds and Devastation in Congo. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Earlier, you mentioned Maurice Templesman of the Lazar Kaplan International, the diamond business, and you just now mentioned Patrice Lumumba. Now, doesn't Maurice Templesman go back to the 1950s, and didn't he have some involvement in that assassination of Patrice Lumumba? Patrice Lumumba and the assassination of Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana. In fact, according to Janine Roberts, who's written the book called Glitter and Gold, which is about the diamond cartels, and she's FOIA'd Freedom of Information Act or looked at all these documents, Maurice Templesman was likely involved in every single covert operation that's occurred in Africa since somewhere in the late 1950s when they assassinated, of course, they assassinated Patrice Lumumba, I think it was 1960 or 61. But every single covert operation since then probably involved Maurice Templesman. Who is Maurice Templesman? Another in, untouchable. You don't see him in the media. He was Jackie Kennedy's lover. His, one of the partners in his uh, Lazar Kaplan International Diamond Company today is part of the law firm that, that was the law firm for President Kennedy. 
he was very close to the Kennedys. Of course, as I said, he became the lover of Jacqueline Onassis for years until she died in 1994. Then he had a romantic tryst with, apparently, with Madeleine Albright, which was, I think, as politically motivated as it might have been romantically motivated, because if you look at what Albright was doing in the era during her power in the Clinton administration and what happened in Africa, where Templesman's interests are, you have to ask, what was he really up to? Templesman in the 1960s helped organize the coup d'etat of the Congo, meaning as independence came to Congo and the people rose up and started to declare their own rights as human beings. Maurice Templesman stepped in with the help of Adelaide Stevenson, whose law firm represented Templesman, and with Kennedy, of course. And then later, Templesman had all these connections to every single administration since then. The station chief for the CIA in Lumumbashi in the south, in Katanga, Lawrence Devlin, worked to make sure that Templesman's interests were served through the CIA in the 1960s and 70s. And then he went to work for Templesman independently in the 1980s. Templesman's connections to the Council on Foreign Relations and to people like Frank Wisner. Who? Exactly. Frank Wisner. Frank Wisner's father helped organize Operation Mockingbird, which was the infiltration of the American media by the CIA. Templesman's connections to the intelligence community and to the Pentagon are incredibly deep, partly because in the 1960s he provided a huge profit for himself and unnecessary expense to the United States government and people, a huge industrial diamond stockpile that he claimed was necessary and that his people helped make happen. So all these diamonds were sold into the United States government. Templesman has funded and funds just about every single prominent Democrat you can name. Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, Richard Gephardt, the list goes on and on. All of these people who serve his enterprise and keep it very well hidden. You don't see him published anywhere. In the 1996, 97, 98 time frame, Clinton and Templespan had very close relations, and they probably still do. Templespan sails off Martha's Vineyard with Hillary and Bill Clinton. Hillary Clinton wears Templespan's diamonds on her fingers. Templespan's diamonds come out of... Botswana, Angola, probably Central African Republic, certainly Congo, and Sierra Leone. And he doesn't work only in Africa. There's two major companies behind Maurice Templespan, Lazar Kaplan International and Leon Templespan and Sons. Templespan's connections to the diamonds in Congo have been displaced to some degree by this, these Gertler Enterprises. And there's a whole slew of companies like Emaxon, which is Canadian, but that's connected to Dan Gertler, and Nicanor, and Dan Gertler Israel, and International Diamond Industries, and Gertler Brothers. And they're all fighting for control, but Templesman held the control in Congo for years of all these diamonds in the heart, like in Mbujumai, the heart of the diamond, diamond capital of, of Congo. So Templesman's connections go very, very deep, and he's very close with Harvard. So when they did this uh, blood diamonds, cleaning up the blood diamonds industries thing that they did in 2001, 2, and 3, where they produced something called the Kimberley Process. It was produced through South Africa, through the diamond companies themselves, with the association of Harvard, some very powerful people at Harvard, like Robert Rotberg. And you look at the connections of Rotberg to the intelligence community, and they're very close to the CIA, very close to the National Security Agency, and that's who Templesman is. He's the National Security Agency. He is the intelligence community, and he moves in the most powerful circles in the world. And when they made the... 
Kimberly process, when they did this Kimberly process, which was introduced to people through Blood Diamonds, when they saw the movie, they come to the end of the movie, it says, well, actually, in the beginning of the movie, it shows the people sitting around the boardroom. They're all white people, and they're in some fancy boardroom in Antwerp, Belgium. And they're talking about the necessity to clean up the diamonds because Global Witness has produced this disastrous report about how people are, oh, it's outrageous, people are being killed in Africa for our diamond. We have to stop it, all this nonsense. And then at the end, it says that the Kimberley process was instituted and the, and the problem of blood diamonds no longer exists. One percent, if that, of diamonds today come from conflict areas or they're blood diamonds. This is nonsense. The entire system revolves around death, despair, and devastation. For example, the entire war in the Congo from 1996 to the lasting elements of war today revolved around diamonds. For one thing, a significant portion of it is about diamonds. So you can't say that the diamond problem has been cleaned up. But Maurice Templespan is very close to the Israelis. I mean, the whole board of the Templespan companies is is uh, Israeli-Americans. And they're powerful law firms. They're from powerful law firms in New York or investment banks in New York and Washington, D.C. And they have deep connections to Israel. In fact, one of the websites that Templespan is connected to, and it's very difficult to find these, actually openly says that they work with the Israeli military. So we're talking about the Mossad. The Israeli CIA is the Mossad. And so we can name the powerful people who are connected to this, whether they're connected to Dan Gertler, or whether they're connected to Maurice Templespan, and these would be Dan Gertler's closest friend, Chaim Leibowitz, and he's very close with Condoleezza Rice. And then there's Benny Steinmetz. Who's Benny Steinmetz? He has these two big companies. He's considered to be the number one De Beers site holder, and that means that he controls concessions and profits for De Beers by acting as a middleman. And De Beers is the Oppenheimer family connected to Britain, and connected to South Africa, which is based out of South Africa. And that brings up Anglo-American, the big De Beers Gold Company, which is partnered with Barrick Gold all across, I think, seven sites in Africa. And Barrick Gold, of course, has as international advisors George Herbert Walker Bush. But going back, there's Templespan, and there's Dan Gertler, and there's Cham Leibowitz, and there's Benny Steinmetz, and there's Lev Leviev, another Russo, powerful Russian Angolan connection, Israeli-Angolan connection. And then these guys, you can bring in all these other people, John Bredenkamp and Billy Rautenbach. And these are what I call the untouchables. Who's John Bredenkamp? He's one of the top 50 most wealthiest people in England, rumored to be worth $1 billion. He has businesses in the United States. Who's Billy Rautenbach? Ditto. And Tony Buckingham of Britain, he runs these mercenary companies, one of which is Heritage Oil and Gas, another of which was connected to the Clinton Adastric. America Mineral Fields Company. And Heritage Oil and Gas, for example, is sinking oil wells on the border with Congo, between Uganda and Congo. And some phenomenal amount of oil, enough to spark this war with the Congo, which is what happened. It was partly about the oil under Lake Albert. And the oil is going to be shipped out through Uganda to Kenya, where the U.S. has a military base. Uganda and Kenya are completely in the U.S. military camp anyway. And the pipeline to ship out the oil for this guy, Tony Buckingham, and all his powerful friends, which include some of these untouchables you'll never hear about who are the closest friends of Bill Clinton, is the pipelines being built by Bechtel Corporation. So it's incredibly nasty hornet's nest. So when you use the word untouchable, you're using it, you're talking about all of the uh, captains of industry. Yeah, most powerful people in the world. People that if they show up anywhere in the media, it might be on the society pages. But 
Temple's man refuses to let himself even show up on the society pages. Keith Snow, thank you very much. You're welcome, Bonnie. I appreciate it very much. People should really be aware that there's all kinds of things that can be done. It's not hopeless. They aren't helpless. They shouldn't feel despair. They should feel a certain sense of outrage because of the kind of loss of life and suffering that we're talking about, which, of course, also hasn't been brought out by the media. But I hope people will take from this the idea that they're being enlightened in a certain way and can use that information to do something positive. Certainly, it's very easy to boycott the diamond industry. I've been speaking with journalist, photojournalist, and human rights and genocide investigator Keith Harmon Snow. Today's show, Blood Diamonds and Devastation in Congo. In addition to working as a genocide consultant for a United Nations body in the Horn of Africa in 2005, Keith Snow researched and reported for Genocide Watch and Survivors' Rights International on Congo and Ethiopia. He is a four-time Project Censored Award winner for Reports on Africa. Keith Snow's essays and journalism, including Hotel Rwanda, Hollywood and the Holocaust in Central Africa, are posted at his website at www.allthingspass.com. That's www.allthingspass.com. You can contact Keith Snow by email at keith.harmon.snow at gmail.com. That's keith.harmon.snow at gmail.com. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of the show, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net. That's faulkner at gunsandbutter.net. Or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. These are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is... Are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand, and divided we will fall, because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call to all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look with this side yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? 